0: 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house, and the house of the Lord, and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places, and the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in a place in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people. Too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding and discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall rise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes, and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood by before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings, and made a feast for all of his servants. Well, it really s- seems strange to me that just a few short years ago, whenever we wanted to go on a trip, we had to take out this antique piece of paper called A map. And, you know, to plan out a trip, it was pretty involved. You know, if you were going a long distance, you had to, you know, write down all of the directions and look at all the interstates and figure out what the best route was to take. You know, then, of course, it kind of moved to MapQuest, you know, and then you typed in your address where you were, address where you're going, and then they they would plan out the map for you. And once, you know, when we had maps, we had to be really careful about following the directions, following the street signs, the, make sure we don't miss our exits. And, and the thing was, if you missed your exit, you could start traveling maybe an hour down the road, and you might not even realize you're going the wrong direction. You know, and then you see some sign that you know, gives you the indication, oh, I'm going the wrong way. Today, it's different. You know, if we have a phone or a car that has a GPS in it, it's pretty hard to get lost you know we might miss our turn but you know the GPS reroutes it for us and the GPS tells us exactly where we are at all times so it's hard to get lost uh, in the same way that it was in the past but for one individual there's a lady named Mary McLaurin and she's very familiar with the feeling of being lost and she has a disorder called uh, developmental topographical disorientation or DDT And what that means is she can't make a mental map of her surroundings. And the thing that's interesting about it is she doesn't have any brain injury. There's nothing, you know, traumatic that happened to her that changed her brain in this way. It's just for whatever reason, she doesn't have the ability to map out her surroundings. So she describes a typical day like this. She says, I was staying at a friend's home and decided to take their dog Otis for a walk. As I started back, I had no idea where I was. I was only blocks from where I had started my walk, but I was lost. Fear and adrenaline pulsed through my veins and I began to sweat profusely. My surroundings looked completely unfamiliar. It was as though I had been dropped into the middle of a foreign land. I hadn't written down the address of the home where I was staying. Walking in any direction would be just a guess. Am I closer or am I farther away? Would I have had to knock on someone's door to use their phone to call the police? How could I expect them to return me to a place if I had no address to provide? Fortunately, eventually someone found her and brought her back to the house. But she continues and says, Those of us struggling with this disorder are often left with feelings of anxiety, depression, isolation, and self-doubt. It's never fun to be lost. Can you imagine getting lost every single day when you go to work? Can you imagine getting lost, having to use a GPS to go to the grocery store that you've gone to a hundred times before? Now, we're not as familiar with being physically lost as maybe in the past when it was easier to get lost, but I think that we all can kind of get spiritually lost. And that idea of being spiritually lost can be kind of disconcerting. Here's what I mean. When I was in high school, senior in high school, and I was really struggling with this because uh, my greatest desire was to honor Jesus with my life. It was my greatest desire. That's what I wanted to do. But then the question was how do I do that? What does that look like? Like, what college should I go to? And so I visited like three different colleges, and there wasn't a moral answer and an immoral answer. I mean, each of those colleges that I visited were perfectly fine colleges. And, and so there was kind of some ambiguity there. Like, how. What direction should I go in? I mean, they were in drastically different areas, drastically different strengths and weaknesses, and so I'm kind of lost. Like, my biggest desire is to honor Jesus, but what college should I pick? And then I kind of picked a college, then it's like, what major should I pick? I wasn't completely sure what I was going to do at that point. I felt like God was calling me to ministry. I wasn't sure, though, and so I'm like, should I study God's Word? Should I study something different? You know, and then while I was in college, I felt God calling me specifically to ministry. And he was calling me to leave the place where I was and go and study his word and devote myself to his word. And then from there, it's like, so where do I go? Do I go away? Do I study online? Then after that, I graduate from college. And I'm looking at seminaries. What seminary do I go to? Do I go to seminary? Visited three different seminaries. All of them were great seminaries. They had great programs, great professors. None of them was a wrong choice. And so I'm trying to figure out what's God's will for my life. I want to honor him, but I don't know which direction I should take. There's a lot of decisions that we make in life that are like that. They're ambiguous. There isn't one right answer or wrong answer. But it also kind of leads us to kind of moral issues that we deal with today. There are moral quandaries and issues today where it's not clear how we should approach certain issues, and even where Christians might have different opinions on how to approach them. And not just talking about right or wrong issues, those are often easier to to figure out, but how should we think about and engage with issues? Issues like how should a Christian think about reproductive technologies, issues like surrogates and Intro, uh ivp and other things like that how should a christian think about the environment how should christians approach the transgender movement how should christians think about covid how should christians function in a democratic society you know we're dealing with issues where it's not simply a right or wrong we may know a right or wrong but it's like how do we engage how do we think about these issues and sometimes it's hard to to figure that out we hate that uncertainty. Human beings hate ambiguity. Author and therapist Virginia Satir once said this, people prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. People prefer the certainty of misery to the misery of uncertainty. We don't like to be in that spot of uh, of being unsure, of having that insecurity. We want to know the answers to the questions of life. We want to know the answers to those Difficult decisions. When there's a fork in the road, we want to know exactly where we should go. a A lady by the name of Anna Merlin is an American journalist who specializes in politics and religion, and she wrote a book in 2019 called Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorist. And she devotes a chapter to the psychology behind UFO conspiracies, and she suggests that this kind of desire for, uh, to learn about aliens is really a desire from, for kind of like a wisdom from above, to know the answers that we don't know. She notes the intensity of uh, conspiracy theories related to UFOs uh, in the U.S., but also globally, and she says this. The intensity, depth, and breadth of the conversation about aliens throughout the world says something profound about human hopes, about our desire to not be alone in the universe about our wish for some wise and mysterious force out there in the farthest reaches of space that's ready to show us the way. UFO enthusiasm coexists with a certain degree of New Age spirituality. There's a sense that extraterrestrials don't just exist, but they will someday reveal to us a better way to live, a higher state of being. Merlin quotes astronomer and leading ufologist Jacques Vallée, who wrote, The UFO mystery holds a mirror to our own fantasies. It expresses our secret longings for a wisdom that might come down from the stars in new, improved, easy-to-use packaging to reveal the secrets of life and tell us at long last who we are. We all desire a wisdom from above. We all desire to have that ambiguity, that uncertainty in our decisions removed. And in the passage we're looking at today, God comes to Solomon in a dream, and he makes uh, an incredible statement to him. He says, ask what I will give you. It's almost like in a movie where a genie comes to someone and says, you got three wishes, just tell me what you want. And of course, we know that Solomon asks for wisdom. And Solomon is kind of, he's kind of a complex character in the scripture. He does a lot of good things, and he does a lot of bad things. And so I think that we can learn both, uh, as, use him as kind of an example for how we approach God, especially when we're dealing with kind of ambiguous situations where there's uncertainty about where, how we should proceed. So he provides us an example for that, but he also provides us with a warning uh, for how we can get off track. And so we're going to kind of touch on both of those today, but first, let's look at his example. Let's look at... Uh, How he approaches God and how he deals with kind of the ambiguity, the uncertainty, the insecurity of his situation. We see first that he recognizes the grace of God. Verse 6 says, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne. So Solomon doesn't take any credit for the fact that he's king. And it's interesting that he does that, that he doesn't take credit for it, because he had a big part in becoming king. His mother, his father... They had a big part. We looked last week at chapter 1 and how his mother and Nathan kind of interceded for him so that he would become king. And so he had a big part of it. And then chapter 2 that we didn't read, he kind of vanquishes his enemy. He kills Adonijah, and he has a big part in becoming king, but he doesn't take any credit for that. He doesn't say, oh, it's because of my righteousness or my strength. He acknowledges the fact that he's king is because of his father David and the covenant that God had made with his father. So he doesn't take any credit for that. And when God comes to him and gives him this remarkable opportunity, he doesn't, say, he doesn't approach it from a position of entitlement. He doesn't say, okay, thanks, God. I mean, I've been faithful to you for all this time. Thanks for coming through and, and answering this prayer for me. He recognizes that everything that he has is a result of the grace of God. And I think this provides us with the first posture for how we're to approach God. When we're dealing with uncertainty, when we don't know which direction we should turn in, we need to come to God and recognize everything that we have as a gift of His. We're to recognize His grace. If we hope to receive something from God, we need to recognize that He's the giver of good gifts. And everything that we have is a gift of His grace. So that's the first thing that Solomon does. He recognizes the grace of God. The second thing is he recognizes his need. Verse 7 to 8 says, Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Again, what's interesting is from the outside, people probably thought Solomon had it all together. Again, he's just vanquished his enemies in chapter 2. He's going to soon construct the palace and the temple. He's making alliances with the king of uh, the king of Egypt Uh, he's doing all these things that are kingly things and it seems like he's a strong mighty king but he realizes he's kind of over his head he's been called to a high calling he's called to be the king of God's people he's called to lead them in worship he's called to lead them in battle and his father was a pretty great king the greatest king in all of Israel's history despite his faults and so he has big shoes to fill and he calls himself a little child, and uh, based on what we know about him uh, physically, he's probably not actually a little child at this point. But he's referring to himself as a little child to, re- to indicate he feels like he's over his head. I mean, his, his father was this great hero, this great leader of God's people, and now there's multitudes that are looking to him for wisdom, and he doesn't know which way to turn. And he realizes he's over his head. And so he comes to God from a place of need. I think sometimes, I think we come to God and we pretend like we have it all together. We come to God and we pretend like there's, we just need a few things. We just need God to answer a few prayers for us. James 1.5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Notice what the text says. If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you don't have it all together... If any of you don't know all the answers, then you come to God. Ask him for wisdom. I mean, if you th- feel like you got it all together, feel like you don't need him, then there's no reason to come to him and ask him for wisdom. But Solomon recognizes he's in over this, his, his head. He has so many people looking to him for leadership, and he doesn't know the right way to lead God's people. And the thing is, we feel like we have control of our lives sometimes. The truth is, we have so little control in just one moment, our lives can be completely transformed. I was reminded of it this week, you know, I, or the last few weeks, actually. You know, I had plans for what I wanted to accomplish after New Year's. And, you know, I've been spending the new year doing funerals. You know, just in a moment, things change. I was reminded of it just last Saturday, not yesterday, but the Saturday before that. I'm, uh, I'm having some lunch with my son have some things I was planning for the day, things I wanted to accomplish, went to Home Depot to get, get some supplies that I needed, and my son Paul just starts having this severe allergic reaction, just out of nowhere. You know, we spent the rest of the afternoon at Children's Hospital, and, and thankfully he was okay, but you know, you think about it, and we have such a little, small amount of control over our lives. In just one moment, everything can change. And so all of us, when we approach God and we don't know the direction that we should turn, we need to recognize our need, recognize that we are in need of his grace each and every moment of the day. Recognize that he's in control. Abraham Lincoln once said this, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to turn. My wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for the day. We're all in need of God's grace. We're all in need of God's wisdom. The third thing that Solomon does that we can learn from is he prays for the right things. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life, or the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I give to you now according to your word. It's truly remarkable when you think about it, out of all of the things that Solomon could have asked for, that he had the humility to ask for wisdom, to ask for God to show him the right way. Now, I thought about this passage and thought about this incredible thing that God does in revealing himself in a dream to Solomon and saying, hey, ask whatever you want from me. Tell me what you want. You know, and I thought about that, and I thought at first, wow, that's really cool. What if God came to me and asked me something like that? But What I thought about a little bit deeper God does. He tells us in the scripture, ask, seek, knock. He tells us to come to him. He's a perfect heavenly father. He longs to give good gifts to his children. And so he tells us to come and ask for whatever we need. Luke eleven nine 9 says this, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. Now, That doesn't mean that we get everything that we ask for. Sometimes God says No but we can bring any request that we want to. But the question is, what kind of requests are we bringing to him? What kind of requests are we bringing to him? Um, Back in 1929 in the Rose Bowl, UCLA was playing Georgia Tech, and uh, an incredible thing happened. Uh, There was a guy on UCLA named Jim Regals, and he recovered a fumble, and somehow he got disoriented, and he started running in the wrong direction. He ran 65 yards towards his own end zone, and he was about to run in and score when one of his teammates came up behind him and tackled him so he wouldn't give points to the other team. You think about that, he was running the wrong direction, his own player had to tackle them, and you know, think, we think about that metaphor, you know, sometimes maybe our requests to God are like that, we're kind of running in the wrong direction. And if we're running in the wrong direction, sometimes it's like God has to kind of come up behind us and, and tackle us and put us on the right path. James 4.3 indicates this when he says this, You ask and do not receive because you have asked wrongly to spend it on your passions. What does it look like to pray in the wrong direction? What does it look like to, to be going the wrong direction in prayer? I think it means praying only for earthly things rather than spiritual things. I think running in the wrong direction is praying only for earthly things rather than spiritual things now again there's nothing wrong we can bring any request we want to God he's he hears us he's a perfect Heavenly Father little things big things but sometimes our prayer life looks like just kind of this list it's like God can you uh, heal grammar God can you give me the money you need that I need God can you help me get this new job God can you heal my marriage God can you help me meet my spouse And again, there's nothing wrong with praying prayers like that, and God encourages us to pray, you know, those individual prayers. But if all we're doing is kind of asking for earthly things, asking God to meet our requests, in essence what we're doing is we're saying, I have the answers, I know what I need, and God, I need you to do these things. You know, we're coming to him saying, God, these are the things I need you to do. Would you do them? But there's a deeper kind of praying. Praying for the things of God. It's much deeper to pray, God, teach me how to love the people around me like you've loved me. God, show me how to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, teach me to be content in whatever circumstances I'm facing. God, give me your peace even in the midst of suffering and heartache. God, show me that you love me. God, give me the right words in this situation. God, give me wisdom as I'm dealing with this problem in my life. Again, there's nothing wrong with the other prayers, but it's a deeper prayer to pray, God, show me the direction. Show me the way versus saying, here, I know the way. These are the things you need to do, God. Now could you do them? And we're asking the right request like Solomon was. He recognizes the, the fact that what he needed most was God's word, God's wisdom in his life. It's like we're running in the right direction. And going back to that kind of football metaphor, you know, it's like when we're running in the right direction, when we're praying the prayers that God would put on our hearts, and it's like God is going before us, just kind of blocking, clearing the way for us. So, again, Solomon's response in this episode serves as an example to us And that he recognizes the grace of God, he recognizes his need, and he prays the right things. And this is kind of a paradigm for prayer for how we're to approach God. We need to come to him with brokenness and humility, asking him to guide us, asking him to lead us in the paths that we should go. And so that's the positive. But again, like I said, we see a very complex character in Solomon. So on the one hand, it says that he loved the Lord. He was a very wise, the wisest man to ever live. He was blessed by God in incredible ways. But he does some things that are kind of at best questionable. He kind of vanquishes his enemy kind of a, in a bloody, ruthless manner. At the beginning of chapter three, we see he enters into a covenant, uh, a marriage covenant with the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now this was at best, at best questionable. Uh, in Deuteronomy it was very clear. That the Israelites were not to intermarry with foreign nations. And the reason was uh, because when that happened, almost always the Israelites took that nation's gods. And we see later Solomon actually does that. He goes after other gods. Later we'll see that Solomon tended to put emphasis on his own palace rather than the temple of God, the building the temple of God. Also, it says that Solomon offered sacrifices at several high places rather than having kind of one central location. Uh, to sacrifice. And eventually we know the story ends very badly for Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 11, it says this, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. So again, he's a remarkable character. He loved the Lord, did a lot of good things, the wisest man to ever live, but he also made a lot of really dumb decisions. So how how do we reconcile those things? How do we have such a wise man making such poor decisions? I think it's kind of hidden in the text here. See, the, what Solomon requests in, in, in the ESV is uh, a request for an understanding mind. That's the way it's translated in the ESV. But a better and more literal translation would be that Solomon requested a listening heart. He requested a listening heart. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verses 1 to 9, uh, wisdom is associated with a heart that listens to and obeys the Word of God. So he asked for a listening heart that obeys listens to the word of God and obeys the word of God. But when God answers him, he answers his prayer, and he gives him something that's slightly different. He gives him a heart of wisdom, a wise and discerning heart. See, there's a sense in which what Solomon has asked for when he asks for a listening heart is something that should have already been his. See, God had already spoken through his word in the book of Deuteronomy and the rest of the law, and God had spoken, and the king and his people were supposed to obey what God had spoken. So there was a sense in which he was already to have a listening heart. And so what God indicates is that wisdom, having the skill to be able to know the things of God and be able to apply them to uh, to specific situations, does not negate the need to listen to God. You can't be wise and not listen to God. You need to have a listening heart, and you have to have a a heart that is wise as well. And so I think that's where Solomon gets tripped up, and I think that's a warning for us that wisdom does not replace obedience. See, we can't expect God to give us the ability to make wise decisions in kind of the crossroads, the ambiguous situations of life, if we're not obedient in what he has clearly spoken to us. Jim Samra wrote a book called God Told Me, and he puts it this way. Suppose you wanted to sit down with the owner of the small company that you work for and get some career advice. Tuesday is your appointed meeting day. When Tuesday arrives, you're late by an hour for no good reason. The owner is agitated that he has been waiting for you, yet in general he considers you a wonderful employee. It is safe to say that before he would share his career advice with you, you should genuinely apologize for being late. Yet being late, as long as it comes with an apology, will not cause him to withhold his advice. If, on the other hand, you are not a good employee and have been recklessly embezzling money from a company and the owner knows it, you should not expect him to share career advice with you. The only advice you should expect from him is, stop stealing money and make restitution. So it is with God. If we are to receive guidance from God, we must apologize for any disobedience currently in our lives." But habitual, unrepentant sin will render God silent except for one word, repent. I think Solomon even himself recognized this. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, he said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Before Solomon is going to be able to make wise, godly decisions, he needs to listen to God's word and obey God's word, and that's where he gets tripped up. See, wisdom without obedience... Equals foolishness. Wisdom without obedience equals foolishness. That's what happens to Solomon. He knows the right things to do. But he's not listening and he's not obeying the word of God. And so he makes some incredibly foolish decisions. It's a powerful warning for us. That if we want to be wise, if we want to make good decisions in our life, in the crossroads, we need to be people of obedience. People who listen to God's word. And so we need to evaluate our hearts before and and ask God, is there anything that you've told me to do I'm not doing? And when we get that settled, then we come to God with humility and, and dependence and say, God, lead me, guide me, give me the words to say. Give me the wisdom that I need to honor you in this situation. And when we do that, when our hearts are right before him, when we're listening to his word and being obedient and come to him for guidance, he's pleased to answer that prayer. The scriptures say the way he answers that is through the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit to guide us, to give us the words to say, to show us the right path to take. So he's pleased to answer that prayer for us. He'll guide us in the right direction. But our hearts need to be right before him, and we need to come to him in humility and grace, asking for his guidance. Proverbs 1, 20 to 23, in closing, says this. Wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. So let's obey God, what God has told us first, and then seek his wisdom to guide us in those ambiguous, difficult situations in life, when we feel like we're over our head, when we don't know where to turn. And when we do that, God will lead us, he'll guide us, and he'll go before us, and he'll make our path straight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you're a good and perfect Heavenly Father, that we can come to you any night and day, and pour our, our, our request to you. Lord, as a people, Lord, I pray that we would be people who listen to your word. That we would not be hearers only, but we would be doers. That when you speak, we act. And Lord, when we come to those crossroads, when we don't know where to turn, when we feel like we're over our heads, Lord, help us to rely on you. Help us to depend on you, knowing that your ways are higher than our ways. Turning to your wisdom and your guidance. Lord, as James wrote, James 1, Lord, We need your wisdom. We live in a world that's difficult, a world that's complex, where there's so many different challenges and so many different obstacles, so many different temptations. Lord, we we don't know the way to turn. We don't know the words to say. Sometimes we don't even know how to think. Lord, we need your wisdom. We need your grace, now more than ever. Lord, we love you. We thank you for always being there for us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.